Man, it's so good to be back together. Amen. I missed y'all. All (laughs) y'all missed you. Missed those of you who are still at home. Some of you at home with good reason. We ain't mad at you, but some of y'all come on out now. Come on out because you don't know the encouragement of seeing the college students walk in again. Right? You You don't know the joy of seeing that older brother or sister walk in again. Or to see that friend you hadn't seen in a long while that that truth be told, you might have even forgotten about a little bit. It's a lot of encouragement and joy to be together as the people of God. Amen? Well, this year, beloved, we are attempting to do something we haven't done before. And that's to kind of replant the church, recenter the church, renorm the church. Uh, since March 2020, everything's been abnormal. We have not been able to touch one another as we would normally touch one another, to greet one another with a holy kiss. We have not been able to visit with one another, to sing as openly and expressively. This morning was an exception. It was a beautiful time of singing this morning, wasn't it? So many things that we, amen, praise the Lord. So many things that we count as normal have been kind of put on pause, delayed. And how many of you know it's been delayed longer than we thought it would have been? And even when we thought we could get back together again and resume things as we sort of had been doing them, beginning back in last May, Omicron comes along and says, no, y'all need another break. Now we come back this morning, we come into 2022, and the pastors, we have, as we prayed and thought about things, we have thought we, we maybe need to go back to some basics. The church has changed a great deal. I think it's about 25% of our membership has joined since the pandemic began. Another maybe 25% of our membership before the pandemic has moved to other parts of the country or moved to other churches. There's been a lot of coming and going. So there's a very real sense in which we need to get to know each other again. And we need to build new bonds of fellowship and renew old bonds of fellowship, and remember who we are and what God has called us to be and do in the world. So we began this year, as we normally do, with our 5M series, our five first five Sundays of the year, thinking about our core objectives, to share the message, to, um, so, to, to sort of stimulate or, or shepherd one another to maturity, um, to show mercy to our neighbors, to Um, seek to multiply leaders in church plants, and to send missionaries. And praise God, our brother, Pastor Dennis, he tore that thing up, didn't he? He tore that thing up, man. And give God another hand clap of praise. You may not know this. This is the first time he's taught a multi-week series of sermons. And I think he did an extraordinary job. In fact, I think I should never teach the five M's again. That's just Dennis's assignment. So you're like, no, bro. <laughs> I see you under the mask. You're like, no, bro. <laughs> Praise be to God. So we started with our five M's. After this next series, which we're about to get into, um, we're going to do a series through our church covenant, thinking about how it is we agree to live together, what we think the, the Bible teaches about our body life as a congregation. And then, Lord willing, following that, we're going to get into one of the pastoral epistles, which is all about 
how to live and serve and act and be as a local church. We'll probably do 1 Timothy. But I wanted to sneak in here a short series that I've called Pastors and People. And I wanted to sort of sneak this series in here because I think in the midst of something like a global pandemic, which stretches and pulls apart relationships, which causes a kind of amnesia about relationships and people, um, which has the effect sometimes of causing us to go off in directions with our own thoughts and our own hearts without sort of checking it by the fellowship that we've had, that I think I've observed in the church world this kind of fraying of the relationships, even the understanding of what the relationship is about between pastors and people, people and pastors. What's supposed to be happening between us? What's supposed to hold us together? What should we be aiming at as we live as shepherd and sheep? Does the Bible say anything about that? And I think the Bible has some wonderful things to say about that that reorient us. And as we are thinking about replanting, as it were, rebooting the church, as it were, coming out, we pray, of the pandemic and coming back to something resembling the normal rhythms of church life, I think it'd be good for us to spend a moment, about four weeks here, just thinking about this dynamic between the people of God and the pastors of God how we relate to one another, what we should expect, spiritually speaking in particular, to grow out of that relationship. So to begin that, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which gives us what I might think, what you might think is a surprising answer to that question. What should be happening between pastors and people? What should be the, the outcome, the fruit, the goal, the aim of that relationship? And for context, I'm going to read all of chapter 1 down to chapter 2, verse 4, and I'm going to sort of give us three statements from this section. We're going to land most emphatically on verse 24, but the context is important here. So three, three points of the sermon if you're taking notes. Number one, pastors and people experience ups and downs together. Pastors and people experience ups and downs together. I want to make some observations mainly from the context, chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Number two, pastors and people must reject abusive leadership. Must reject abusive leadership. And we're going to see that in the first half of verse 24. And number three, here's the main thing, that pastors and people work together for joy and faith. It's a partnership for spiritual joy. That's what's supposed to be going on between us. Look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Savannah and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's how this sweet, sweet letter begins. The first thing I want us to think about is 
that pastors and people, our relationship happens in a real world context. It has ups and downs. We have ups and downs with each other. And you might have caught some of the ups and downs as I was reading through chapter one. Let's start with the ups. By ups, I mean the experiences and truths that hold pastor and people together, the things we experience in common. So four things here. Number one, notice people and pastors share the same social experiences. That's what I get from verse six. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So Paul is bringing to mind his afflictions, his sufferings, his hardships and trials. And he's also bringing to mind the ways in which God has comforted him and the ways in which he has been comforted for the church's comfort. But did you notice the second half of that verse? Which you experience when? Not when you avoid suffering and hardship. Which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Isn't it amazing? We find comfort with each other, pastor and people, when we share in the same sufferings, when we enter into each other's social experience, whether it's comfort or whether it's affliction. And all of it is meant to issue forth in more of God's comfort. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense when we think about our experiences of suffering. If we've really been suffering, isn't one of the things we've wanted is somebody to sit with us? Somebody to check on us? Somebody to lament with us? And when that doesn't happen, don't we feel a kind of abandonment? Or a kind of lostness? Like we've been forgotten by, by those who say they love us? Those are just the echoes of, of wanting someone to enter into the hardship with us because when we're in it together, we comfort each other. And that's a mark of a healthy church. Suffering is not a mark of an unhealthy church, but suffering and patiently enduring and sharing it together is the mark of a healthy Christian church. And so those are part of the ups, actually even if it's caused by pain. Notice number two, that pastors and people, we help each other through prayer. Do you see that in verse 11? You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted, granted us through the prayers of ministry. Uh, of many, excuse me. The regular ministry of praying for one another has a way of tying our hearts together. It has a way of bonding us. This is why there's more going on in the prayer meeting of the church than, than simply listening to other people pray. That the Holy Spirit of God is, is, is like a needle and a thread sort of piercing each heart and knitting us together and tying us together in a deeper affection. If we neglect to pray for one another, as the prophet says, we sin against each other. And if we neglect to pray for one another, we, we neglect one of those things that stirs us up to love and good deeds and brings us into a tighter bond of fellowship and love. Yeah, the life of the church is up 
when the church's life is full of prayer. Notice number three, that people and pastors, here's another experience we should have together, another up. We ought to boast in one another. Did you see that in verse 14? He says there that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, this is not carnal bragging, right? This isn't my church is the best church, your church ain't nothing, right? This isn't, this isn't my pastor is a great pastor. I ain't never heard of your pastor, you know. That's not what Paul is talking about here. It's not carnal bragging, right? We, we don't exist to exalt ourselves above other congregations. We're all on Team Jesus, right? A win for one church is a win for all churches, and so we want to have that spirit about things. Paul isn't thinking about the church down the street. Paul is thinking of meeting Jesus when he comes. You see how it starts there? That on the day of our Lord Jesus. How many know that Jesus is coming again? And he's coming in his glory. And he's coming to receive his bride. He's coming to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He's coming to end injustice and unrighteousness and evil and sin. And he is coming to consummate a perfect kingdom where there is unending righteousness and unending joy. Now, what's striking to me is Paul says, on that day, we tend to think we're going to glory in Jesus, and we will. On that day, we will see him, and seeing him, we will be like him. But Paul also says here, on that day, when I see Jesus, I'm going to glory in you. I'm going to rejoice over you. My heart is going to be lifted in exultation over the people of God, and I expect that you will glory in me. Can you imagine? To see Jesus and to say to Jesus as pastors, brothers, have you seen these people called ARC? Have you seen how they have loved you and served you? Have you seen how they have fought sin and pursued righteousness? Have you seen how they have given generously to the work of the gospel? Have you seen these people called ARC? You will be our crown of rejoicing. And can you anticipate as a people seeing Jesus on that day and saying, Lord, thank you for the pastors you gave us who taught us the word of God, who were faithful, who sought imperfectly, yes, but sought genuinely to model what it means to follow Jesus, who sacrificed at nights when we couldn't see them and sacrificed at times where we could, who loved us and gave themselves for us as Christ did the church. A healthy church, a healthy relationship between pastor and people is one of rejoicing and of exulting and of looking for the day of Christ when we can brag to our Lord on each other. This is meant to fill us, this relationship with joy. We should begin to do that even now. Don't wait till Jesus comes. Don't, don't, don't wait till people are dead to give them their flowers. Give them their flowers while they're living. A fourth thing. That pastors and people share the same Trinitarian spiritual blessings. This is one of the ups of the Christian life. Notice in verses 21 and 22, and it is God who established us, us with you in Christ. 
and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I love this. Paul doesn't even think of salvation without thinking of how leaders and members share in the same salvation. He says, us with you, right? We're in this together. Three more times he says, us. We are saved individually, but we have an us experience of salvation. Paul considers the Trinitarian blessings of God as belonging to all of us together. You see the Trinity there? It is God who establishes us. How does he establish us? Well, it's in Christ. It's in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross when he died for our sins and three days later was raised from the grave. It's from the finished work of Jesus Christ when he obeyed the Father perfectly in our place so that all the righteousness we will need in order to be accepted by God comes through faith in Jesus. So God establishes us by the gospel of his Son. And not only that, notice what God does for us. He, he, he has put his seal on us, his stamp of ownership. He has anointed us. He has chosen us and, 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 and commissioned us to live for his namesake. And he has given us, he is the third person of the Trinity, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Oh, beloved, what precious things God has done for us in Christ. Some of you may feel like your feet are slipping. I'm here to tell you, God has established you. He's established you. He's put you on firm foundation. He's put you on the rock that is Christ. Your knees may buckle, your arms may be feeble, but praise be the God, Colin. You don't keep yourself. God has established you, brother. Praise be to God that, that, Jada, you don't keep yourself. You don't stand in your own strength. You stand because God has made you to stand. He has established you, my sister, in Christ. And our fellowship is one where we are reminding each other of these gospel truths that we have been established by God. And not only that, we have been anointed by God. Shamar, you're an anointed brother, brother, chosen by God, selected by God for his namesake and service to his name. Joy, my sister, you are an anointed sister and have an anointed husband because God has chosen you and chosen you together to be heirs of life and chosen you together to represent his name. You are anointed in Christ. And not just anointed. The text just keeps going on. God has put his seal on you. Brother Colley, don't you know that God has stamped you as belonging to him? Sister Colley, don't you know that God owns you, has chosen you, delights in you? Precious. You ain't got that name precious for no reason. You are precious to God. God has anointed you and sealed you until the day of redemption. Nobody else can come along and look at one of God's people and say, I'm going to take you for myself. God says, mine. He has stamped you as his own. And if that weren't enough, Dennis and Joshua, if that weren't enough, Christy, if that weren't enough, Dietrich, if that weren't enough, Brother Blue, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, as a guarantee of all that is to come. 
Now, our relationship is about those things. Reminding each other of those things, delighting in those things, getting our hands deep down into the treasure chest of the gospel and coming up with gold coins and gold goblets and coming up with silver crowns and diamonds and rubies. All the riches of Christ are to be at the heart of our ups together, of our joys together. And beloved, if you're not yet a Christian, we we invite you into these same riches. This same work that Jesus did on the cross in dying for sin and rising from the grave, that same work is still being applied to people today. Changing people, giving them a new heart, a new life, giving them all the promises of God to save them from hell and judgment and to make them his own children. And God offers that to you even this morning. If you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and so be established in Jesus with us, By faith, you will live forever in his grace and goodness, and you will see his glory and know his joy. Nothing more important for you to do this morning than to put your faith in Jesus. If you have questions about that, then nothing more important for you to do after the service than to talk to the Christian friend who brought you or to talk to one of the pastors or the members that we might explain this more fully and pray with you. We would delight to do that. Now, beloved, those are the ups. There are also some downs in this real-world Christian life and some things that affect the relationship of pastors and people, things that pull at the fabrics up fabric of the relationship. And I want to highlight just a couple quickly from the text. Number one, there's missed opportunity. There's missed opportunity that really come from human limitations. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, I was sure of this, that that he would boast in the Corinthians and they would boast of him on the day of Christ. I, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way. You see, Paul had planned one thing, but he wasn't able to do it. He wanted to be with them, but He was prevented from being with them. For some reason, he doesn't really specify here at this point. He wanted, in fact, his travels to be such that on the way to Macedonia and on the way back, he would stop in and check on the Corinthians. But something has happened. In the end, he couldn't come. His limitations and failures as a human being prevented him. And as we'll see, those limitations put a damper on his relationship with the Christian church. And let me just sort of say right here as we move through these quickly, your pastors are limited people. And sometimes you will bump into our limitations. And if we're not careful, we, we, you won't just sort of experience that as a limitation, but the heart of our relationship will be affected. I want us to watch for that. And pastors, sometimes we, we may be disappointed in some way by a sheep or some sheep. And if we're not careful, it will affect our affection. Now notice the second thing here. There's missed opportunity, which often leads to, number two, misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, suspicions. Notice verse 17, how the Corinthians apparently responded. Paul says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? At the same time, I assume he's probably saying something like this because that's the charge that's being made against him, that Paul is wishy-washy. 
that Paul talks out of both sides of his mouth. That he says one thing, but he ain't really serious. Y'all know people like that. That he can't be trusted. So suspicion began to take root between them. So we need to watch out for whenever disappointment happens in our relationship, because suspicion is often very close at hand. Let me show this to you just a little bit more clearly. Number three, there's not only misunderstanding, there's also misinterpretation of motive. Misinterpretation of motive. Notice, Paul, verse 23, part of why he didn't come is he wanted to spare them, he says. But they misunderstood that and questioned his integrity. And they didn't even have Twitter and Facebook, beloved. There was a previous visit, look down in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that it caused some pain between them. And Paul recognized that another visit at this point could create even more pain if they had not reconciled over the previous visit and the previous pain. Listen, beloved, unresolved, lingering hurt is quicksand. It pulls us down deeper and deeper into resentments, disappointments, hurts, and suspicions. And how do you know when that's happening? Well, all you need to do is listen to yourself. Listen to the monologue that happens in your head when you're driving to work and you think about church. If you find yourself playing a tape over and over again that is basically the best hits of your grievances, Bitterness and resentment is taking place. If your thoughts are always sort of drifting to the limitations and the misunderstandings and the hurts, you are nursing resentment, right? And so we begin to misinterpret one another. What seems to have started all the pain and hurt, again, was an earlier letter that Paul had written. You see that referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Now, Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4 there that he wrote out of abundant love for them. But the Corinthians interpreted it differently. So what we have with the letter of 2 Corinthians is another example of how ministry often goes sideways. Leaders can intend one thing, but impact people differently. And people so impacted can interpret motives that were never there. It's a rough slide to be on. It's a slide full of razor blades. In fact, people can lose sight of just how much suffering and pain that's actually going on in the life of, of leaders and people. That, Paul make references to that in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, verses 8 and 9, again in chapter 2, verse 4. That's the struggle and suffering that was going on with Paul while Paul was simultaneously trying to express love toward this struggling, hurting church. How many of you know that when you're hurting, it's difficult to make love come through cleanly? And if a church is anything, it's a collection of hurting people. And if a church has any challenge, then it's the challenge of loving people to make, or hurting people to make love come through clearly and undiluted in every instance. That's a challenge for us, beloved, in this real fallen world that we're in. 
And that's a challenge I think that's affecting in the church world today, the relationship between pastors and people. We are so quick to nurse grievance and so quick to be hurt and so eager, it seems, to misunderstand and misinterpret motive. We need to be careful. Sometimes disappointment and misunderstanding happen in a church between pastors and people. It just does. That's a fact of the Christian life. It's a regular job hazard of Christian ministry. But how we handle disappointment tells us a lot about our spiritual maturity or immaturity, doesn't it? Tells us a lot about the state of the health of our church. As I said, we now live in an age when Christians are so fragile that any little disappointment causes us to walk out on one another. Christians are disappointed when pastor said blank. Or they're mad because pastor didn't say blank. Plain biblical truth lovingly delivered is to such of so much so-called hurt for a lot of people. Now, when I put hurt in air quotes, I don't mean to say there's not real church hurt. There is. But I think it's overstated in a lot of cases. Resilience and endurance like good, good soldiers seems to be at a low tide in the Christian world today. Trauma seems to be a flood everywhere. Instead of being a help to our Christian lives, the, the therapeutic has sometimes, for some people, replaced the biblical. It's almost impossible to pastor nowadays because people trust their disappointment and suspicion more than they trust the leaders who teach them the Word of God, knowing they're going to give an account to God for how they teach it. I know that's not you. Not yet. So when the day comes that we are tempted to be disappointed in one another, beloved, tempted to question each other's character and motives, I hope we'll remember 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. I hope perhaps we'll remember this sermon. And I hope we'll respond the way we see Paul call the church to respond in chapter 1, verse 24. Let me say one other thing here. When we think of the relationship of pastors and people at ARC, the, the Bible would have us put things, again, in a real-world context not a perfect, idealized vision or dream. Anybody who's come here thinking we've got it all figured out, I'm, I'm trying to lovingly tell you we don't. You're going to come here and see some of the same things you see in other churches. Why? Because we're all fallen human beings. Please don't sort of put on rose-colored glasses about ARC, for your disappointment will be deeper when it comes. We are in a real-world context here. Right? And so I want us to think about these things in a real-world context. For example, again, we live right now in the, in the real-world context of a global pandemic. And I'm learning that a pandemic will put space between pastors and people more effectively than anything I have ever experienced in my life. Right now, a lot of people in the Christian world are drifting from relationships with churches and church members and pastors. Some people are even leaving the faith altogether. This is not solely because of the pandemic, but this isolating effect of the pandemic has contributed a great deal to the distance between not only pastor and people, but the distance between people and Bible and people and Jesus. And we need to be careful of that, beloved. And we need to reassemble with a zeal and a joy 
about the privilege of being able to be the church and to gather. Let me move on. That was context. It's much longer than I intended. So, right, Dennis gave you all five weeks of shorter sermons. Now we're back to what Pastor T do. So, number two, pastor and people must reject abusive leadership. Keeping in mind the context that Paul is writing in here, he wants them to understand there's some ups and some downs in their relationships, but he wants them to also understand that healthy spiritual Christian leadership responds to the downs both by avoiding something and by doing something. There's something that pastors, number one, should never do. We must never, verse 24, lord it over the church. Or to use another word, we must never be domineering. Control and power are inappropriate motivations or goals for Christian life and Christian ministry. It is anathema to the, the, the sort of death to self, servant to all ethic of Jesus and the kingdom. Christianity is not about power. It is not about control. It is about sacrifice and service. So as pastors, we, we are servants, not dictators. We see that, for example, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. The Lord there is talking with his disciples. He calls them together and he says this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he says this. Here's the model. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is at the heart of Christian leadership. That is at the heart of the relationship between pastor and people, not pastors and leaders and deacons and deaconesses looking to be served, but like Jesus, Look, looking to serve and to give our life as a ransom, to give our life as a payment for the welfare, the well-being of the people. Because Jesus' earthly ministry is the pattern of our Christian ministry. And pastors are willing servants, shepherds, not domineering lords. So we see the same thing taught again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. But Peter says there, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why must leaders lead this way? Why must the pastor-people relationship be defined in this way by, by not lording over your faith? It's because we are ultimately called as overseers, under-shepherds, to care for the church. Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That our care for the church 
And the experience of care between pastor and people ought to be informed by the fact that you are blood-bought people, purchased by the blood of the Son of God. You don't handle roughly something God purchased by the blood of his son. You handle it for the precious thing it is. So we are meant to be caretakers, not abusive owners. So, brothers and sisters, we must keep in mind the context, again, of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And all the ups and downs, especially the downs, we should never respond to difficulties with dominance. We must never pull power plays. The relationship between pastors and people is never one of power, but as we said, of caring service. So we want to develop a culture among ourselves where we promote love-motivated leadership and we reject power-motivated leadership. We want to be careful to lovingly confront each other when necessary rather than circling the wagons and doubling down and instinctively defending ourselves as leaders. Too much of that going on in the church world. When we consider future leaders, we need to look for men and women who show no interest in power and dominating others. And we need to ask intentional questions that help us identify and distinguish the autocratic spirit from a self-sacrificing spirit. And congregation, pray for your leaders to live this and to understand this more deeply each day. Pray that this will be the culture of leadership both now and for the entire future of ARC. And also understand how difficult it is to lead in love while carrying the collective burdens of the church. I mean, I, you don't think this is easy, do you? Praise the Lord. <laughs> I mean, ponder the burdens of ministry so you can reject the creeping perfectionism that develops toward leaders. It is a curious thing that there are Christian people who expect the kind of perfection from the leaders that they never expect in themselves. We all two-legged creatures, fallen and saved by grace. And finally, as your leaders fight the temptation to rule the church or become domineering, you must fight the temptation of becoming unsubmissive and disobedient. It's so easy for us to read the mail of others while ignoring the mail addressed to us, isn't it? So easy for us to do that. We can say, that's right, that's right, when it seems like the point is about somebody else. But we may put our hands over our ears when God says to members that we must honor and submit to leaders. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, which we'll think about in a week or two, says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see that? That submission to qualify godly leadership is for your advantage. It's for your joy, and it's for their joy. So first, we want to avoid abusive relationships. Secondly, Verse 24, and here's where we get to the heart of what we're doing together, that pastors and people are to work together for joy. If you ask yourself, what is the purpose or goal of the pastor-people relationship? Here is one beautiful biblical answer to this. He says there, work, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm 
in your faith. Now, you may have a translation that says um, fellow workers instead of we work with you. We are fellow workers for your joy. I find that interesting because normally when Paul uses that term fellow workers, he's talking about fellow workers in the gospel, in missions, in church planting. So in this way, Paul is really elevating the importance of what we do together as pastors and people to the level of sort of gospel work, to the level of, of, of fellow workers in the gospel. What are we fellow workers for? Joy. It's what we sang earlier. Got joy, 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 joy down here in my heart. And I, I love Ashley Solo. Where? <laughs> down in my heart. Now, this joy, just to be real clear, is not the same thing as everybody's individual personal happiness. He's not saying here that we work together just to make you happy in in the ways you want to be happy. I don't like that song. I don't sing that song no more. You know, lights in the theater too bright. Turn them down. All those things, you know, that the carnal man wants. That's not what's in view here. He's talking about a spiritual joy. And the spiritual joy that that he has in view is the joy that comes from fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The spiritual joy he has in mind here is the joy that comes from seeing ourselves and experiencing ourselves being conformed to the image and the likeness of Christ. Seeing the, the victory and the pleasure of actually obeying Jesus. That's the joy that he has in view there. And if we're Christians, that's the joy we want. The joy of being with God, being like God, and doing what God has called us to do in the world. And that may have nothing to do with our individual wants. But it has everything to do with our happiness, our true happiness. So we are meant to work together for that kind of joy. Now, there are three or four quick implications I want to give you for this. Number one, that real spiritual joy and a strong faith should be the explicit goals of the pastor-people relationship. I want to say that out loud because I think otherwise what we all do is kind of drift into a church with our expectations never spoken, and then that becomes a source of so much disappointment. I want you to know that that here, biblically, in this text, the explicit goal of our relationship isn't so many other things we might have imagined or so many other things we might have been reacting to in previous church contexts. The the explicit goal here is that we are in a partnership. We are in fellow, we are fellow workers, pastors and people for each other's spiritual joy. That's what we're aiming at. That's what we want to be consumed with. To put it another way then, your joy and my joy is a legitimate goal of the Christian life. Sometimes Christians seem to develop this notion that um, it's only about working for God and joy is kind of this trivial thing that people get caught up in. No, the text says that what we're actually working for is joy. That's a legitimate goal of the Christian life. Now, there's a second thing I want to take from this phrase, and that's this, that joy and faith must be worked for. It must be worked for. Beloved, happiness requires effort. Spiritual joy requires effort. You got to put the flesh to death. 
you got to avoid the world and the devil. That, that ain't something that just comes by osmosis. Trusting God in life requires effort. Joy and faith are spiritual disciplines, not just feelings. And let's tell the truth. We too often want to be passive in our pursuit of joy. We, we just want it brought to us. My wife, my lovely wife, my darling wife, my intelligent, super spiritual, beautiful wife. Years ago, one of her favorite things in life to do was to go to the grocery store. Be in the grocery store for hours. It only took me two trips to realize that when she asked me if I wanted to go, the answer was no, 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 no. You go ahead, baby. I won't take that from you. Hours. And I'd go with her, and she would go down the aisle, and she would pick up the same can of soup that we've been eating for 10 years and read that label like it was a new product. I'm like, they ain't changed that can of soup, baby. Let's just grab it and go. I mean, the grocery store was an outing for her. You hear me? And then she discovered something called Instacart. She ain't been to the grocery store since, man. And she sit back and she'll text the family and she'll say, hey, I'm about to place an Instacart order. Anybody need anything? People send in their little requests. She put it together. She put it in Instacart. She never leave her little office there. She'd be wiggling her little toes right there at her desk and put in her order and peep out the window, watching for the Instacart guy. And the Instacart come, bring it. And sometimes be bringing groceries in shifts. It'd be like three, four cars. Like, what did you order? And you know what? Y'all talk to me after the service, but it seemed like to me that there are quite a number of Christians who want to treat God and their pastors and their churches like Instacart drivers saying, bring to me my joy while I sit here and wiggle my toes. Joy, like anything worth having, has to be worked for. The good news in this text is you're not working for it alone, which brings me to the third thing here. Joy is to be worked for, but notice now, lasting spiritual joy and faith in God requires the entire church. I know we don't like group projects in school, but right here in the church, this is where we got to have a group project, y'all. And we got to show up and do our part. And we got to show up and do our part, even when there's some other saints who are struggling to show up and do their part of the assignment. We don't achieve real lasting joy alone. God has designed it so that we must experience and achieve it together. We need the saints. We need each other, pastor and people. So nothing could be more necessary to our spiritual happiness and our continuing trust in God than that we should have pastors and that we should have each other on this spiritual journey. If you're a Christian, the local church is essential to your spiritual joy. And I know that two years of watching church online has subtly suggested to you that it's not essential. But I need to tell you, and I need us to understand that watching church online, as convenient as it is, I enjoyed it too. You know, let me go ahead and put myself out there too. I enjoyed it too. As convenient as it is, ain't even close to substituting the real flesh and blood fellowship and relationship of the body of Christ. Ain't even close. If I understand this text correctly, when we are least happy, then we most need the church. Disappointed? Come closer to the saints and the shepherds. 
joyless, join the work that we are doing together to find joy in Christ. It's counterintuitive, but it's the church that God uses to heal church hurt. It's counterintuitive, but the place to address your disappointments with the church is in the church. It's counterintuitive, but when we start to sort of initially have a little high of being out there alone, that ought to be a signal to us to run back into the, the sheepfold and back into the relationship with pastors and people. We must work together for this joy. Well, how do we do this? What does this look like? Let me give you six quick applications. My brother Peter's out there like, Pastor T, you said three points. This is point number 19. <laughs> All these sub points. Six quick applications. Number one, what does it look like to work together for joy? Number one, it, it looks like meeting together. That's what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. It? Do not neglect meeting together is the habit of some. The first basic step is let's get up. Let's gather on the Lord's day with the Lord's people to do the Lord's things. Let's meet together. Number two, it looks like celebrating together. Not just church anniversaries, but at wedding anniversaries and work anniversaries and milestones and conversions and baptisms at baby announcements and births at graduations from high school or trade colleges or universities. Celebration is an act of resistance in a world full of darkness and destruction. And God's people, the church, ought to be a hothouse of celebrating, of rejoicing together. Number three, we not only meet together and celebrate together, we should hope together. We should learn to hope together. You know that hope is essential to joy? That, that it's, it's almost impossible to be joyful where you are hopeless? That joy is a certain kind of expectation that things are going to be fulfilled positively. That's what joy is. If you don't have that expectation, which we call hope, you're not going to likely have joy there. But sometimes we need each other to help each other hope. We need each other to help each other hope so that that gives rise to joy. And hope is a practice. It's a discipline. And so we need, we need each other. So we need to learn to hope together. And we, we live in a world so full of discouragement. Isn't it true that many of us have learned we don't want to hope too loud? We don't want to hope publicly. We don't want to share our hopes. So we live, as one writer put it in a different context, quiet lives of desperation. But we want to live as open lives of hope because we serve a resurrected Lord who gave us Romans 8, 28. So we should hope together. Number four, we should evangelize together. We should go out and share the good news together. Philemon 1, 6 says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ sounds like a really long-winded way of saying joy to me. Share your faith. That word share is the word we have, koinonia. It could be meaning share in the sense of uh, fellowshipping with one another, or it could mean in the, in the sense of evangelizing. That's how I'm taking it here. But in either case, when we get together and share the gospel with those who don't yet believe or with each other, we get together in fellowship, 
That's how we discover the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So we should be at coffee and convo. We should, like our brother William, start workplace Bible studies. We should do those things that export the gospel because that exporting of the gospel is going to return in the form of imported joy. Number five, we must reconcile with one another. We must reconcile with one another. As we said in the beginning, conflict will come. Misunderstandings will happen. Hurt and offense will even take place. But, but what is a church family if it's not a forgiving family? What is a church family if it's not the place where people can freely confess their sins, their wrongs? I mean, have we even really believed the gospel if we don't practice confession and forgiveness? Have we really learned to love one another if we don't do those things? The Bible is filled with calls and commands and exhortations to forgive. So sometimes we need to leave our gift at the altar, go be reconciled, then come worship. Let us be a a community of reconciliation. Let us be committed to that because hurt and disappointment is bound to happen in the pastor-people relationship, in the people-people relationship, in the pastor-pastor relationship. Let us be committed to reconciliation. Number six and final. Let us listen together to God's word. Let's listen together to God's word. Now, I would heartily commend to you the private study of the Bible. We should all have our quiet times. We should have our times of spiritual devotions where we press into the prayer closet alone with Jesus or, or we open and get our nose into the Bible in personal study. But something more happens when we study it together, when we hear God's word as a community and discuss God's word as a community. We begin to be benefited not just by our personal study, but we can begin to be benefited by the study and life experiences of others. We begin to see more in the Bible and more in each other, and our fellowship and our affection expands. And our joy expands. Bible study at Thursday nights at 7. Peter's doing a great job of walking us through Hosea. It's via Zoom. It should be full. It should be full. There's no commuting. There's no traffic. There's no rushing to get dinner on the table. You can join while cooking dinner or eating dinner. It should be full. And in that fullness, we should begin to experience a fullness of joy and fellowship. We, we want to see this auditorium full. Not just because we're counting nickels and noses. You guys know us. It's never been about numbers. But because we know that there's something richer that happens when we hear the word of God together and are shaped simultaneously by hearing the word of God together. Let me prove this from the Bible. First John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John says there, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. You see what he's saying? We preach to you so that you will have fellowship with us. Then he says this, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's crazy. We preach so that you would fellowship with us. But you know what? 
don't get it twisted. It ain't about just you fellowshipping with the preacher. Our fellowship is with God, the Father and the Son, as we hear the word preached. Verse 4, and we are writing these things, here we are again, so that your joy may be complete. So that your joy may be complete. That's why we gather under God's word. That's why as preachers we prepare the sermons. That's why we call you to come listen and listen eagerly and expectantly and hopefully so that we would fellowship with God and so that our joy together would be complete. Never listen to a sermon to hear what the beauty has to say. Listen to the sermons to fellowship with God and receive his joy. There's more going on than a man giving a lecture. God is offering us a happy life through his preached word. So we should end. I guarantee there'll be times when you are tempted and I am tempted to disappointment or distrust in the church. What God wants us to remember is that there is a partnership here between pastors, the people, and himself. And that partnership requires work and firm faith. But the fruit of that partnership is everyone's spiritual joy. Commit yourself to the happiness of the church, and you'll be committing yourself to your own happiness. Work for it. And whether we succeed at the highest levels we can imagine, whether or not we reach that level, we will, in fact, reach more joy than we had when we began. This is for our joy. Let's aim for it. Let's work for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for inspiring the, the Apostle Paul to write your words in 2 Corinthians 1. And we thank you so much for preserving your word even down to this day, that we might have it in our language, that we might, by your providence, be able to gather under the preaching of your word, and, and that we might, by the work of your Holy Spirit, through the word, be encouraged, be sanctified, be given joy. Well, we just stop right now to pray for the joy of our church. For every member who's wandering, for every member who is discouraged, for every member who's tempted to pull away, for every member who's developed wrong thoughts about the centrality of the church or wrong thoughts about leadership or wrong thoughts about the saints. Oh God, would you draw them nearer to the church and draw them deeper into joy? Would you use the church to heal and correct, to build up, to feed and strengthen, to make firm, to make joyful all of your people. Would you do this for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.